Welcome to the Intuitive Ed. Anytime that a filmmaker is coming up with an idea, developing a story, there, there's going to be a strong degree of intuition in it. I mean, the inspiration comes out of the ethers. It just drops into the top of your head and, and sparkles on you and, and, you know, and it won't leave you alone until you harness it somehow. Hello, I'm Victoria Lynn Weston, your host. I'm an intuitive business consultant, entrepreneur, and founder of Studio Carlton. We're a group of visionaries, producers, and developers of custom Amazon Alexa skills. I embrace big, bold ideas and love doing the unpredictable when it comes to helping business owners and professionals expand their brand, gain recognition, and attract new clients. The future is here, and it's all about voice. Check out StudioCarlton.com. Today's guest is a filmmaker, and a very successful one at that. His name is Philip Sedgwick. Philip Sedgwick, it's a pleasure to have you here on The Intuitive Edge, and I'm really excited to talk to you because you have won an award with the Zoe Awards Festival as Best Film Short, and it was a, I guess it's a comedy, a romantic comedy, would you call it? Oh, gosh, I would call it um, uh, a romantic dramedy. Oh, okay, cool. Um, yeah. So, so I'm, I'm excited to talk to you about it, and um, you and I have sort of gotten to know each other over the last couple of months and, and chat a lot about, you know, some films and film production and that type of thing. But before I get yes. into that, because the show is called The Intuitive Edge, and usually I like to ask individuals how intuition fits or doesn't fit into, in your case, the creative process. Uh, it totally fits in. Uh, it's, you know, whenever you come up with a story concept, it's, it's an intuitive, it's an intuitive hit. One night I was walking out of a Mexican restaurant in, in Phoenix and, uh, had a few cervezas and, um, you know, those kinds of things that, uh, knock out your logic, uh, sequence. And I saw a neon cactus lamp in the store window and I said, wow, there's a neon cactus. That would be a great movie title. Boom, just happened like that. I did uh, the first short film that I directed was a dream. Um, uh, Zap, it, uh, I dreamt it. I woke up and thought that would be that would be an amazing short film. What was the inspiration behind Meteoric? I was watching the news one night back in June of 2016, and they had um, a, a picture of a dash cam picture of a meteor crashing probably 50 miles away from where we are here in Tucson. And as I saw that, I was just I was stunned. And it was just like, wow, that would be great to have in a film. Well, I, I sat with it for quite a while. And then, you know, one day I decided I was going to sit down and start working on the story. And it's like, OK, so what would be interesting about the meteor? And or the meteorite, to be technically correct. And I thought, well, what if two couples with different agendas arrived at the meteor site at the same time? That would be fun. So it was it was that kind of thing. And oh, by the way, um, in New Jersey yesterday, CNN reported that a meteorite from Comet Holly crashed into a house up there in New Jersey. No way. Um, the executive producer of this film is, lives in New Jersey. Uh -huh. I don't know how close it was to where she is. But um, it's uh, the the meteorite was very similar to the one that we used in the film. The one we used in the film was actually a rock that I fashioned to um, look more meteoric than uh, th than it did by itself. So I helped it along, you know, put on some makeup and that sort of thing. Oh yeah, 
everybody yeah. everybody could use a little sprucing up that way. So that's pretty interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah, can't we all? Yeah. <laughs> so so you've got these uh, characters, and they both have a opposing you know uh, motives. Um, what were the motives in general? I mean, I've seen the movie, but you tell me about it. Well, there there are two couples that arrive at the meteor site at the same time. One is an, an astronomer, an astronomer PhD candidate. When he gets his PhD paper submitted, and he'll get a real office and have equipment and things like that. And and his girlfriend, and they've been together a while. And then a cowboy and and his fiance. And both the guys want the meteorite. The astronomer is like, well, we can cut it up and, you know, figure out where it came from. And the cowboy is going, you know what? I could cut this thing up and sell it on eBay or something, you know. I could take a little piece of this uh, meteorite and make a nifty-looking diamond ring. Not nifty-looking. It's not actually a diamond, but meteorite. Jewelry is really beautiful. So he wants to cut a piece of it off. The astronomer wants to cut it up. And both the women and their wives are going, no, no. What you need to do is you need to preserve the meteor. You know, it's like stuff comes to us, and, and, and what do we do? You know, we immediately have to take it apart. I remember as a kid, I took apart an alarm clock to see how it worked. And so there was this big spring in it back in the days of the wind-up alarm clocks, and it popped out. And I could never get that thing back in there. And it's like once you monkey with things, you know, you're not going to get it back to any level of functionality. So leave it the hell alone and appreciate it for what it is. Uh, Mark Twain said something to the effect of, you know, we investigated the rainbow and figured out what makes it up. And, you know, we've kind of lost the magic and awe. So it was a bit of that concept that, that is in here, too. It's like, you know, leave things alone. So the women are really wanting to preserve the meteorite. Put it in a museum. Put it on display. You know, be in awe of the fact that this fell from the heavens. And, sure. you know, be glad that it didn't land on your house. And and so they have the different agendas. And during the course of the film, the women realize they're aligned. And the guys realize they're aligned. And so the two couples that started out as they depart at the end of the film, not going to give away the whole ending, just in case you have a chance to view it at a festival near you. But they 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 recognize that they are better paired with, um, you know, each the, the different people than what they started out. Very good. What is the underlying message of Meteoric? I mean, what is the, the takeaway for people that watch it? The, the, the be, first of all, be in awe of the heavens. You know, some amazing things are happening up there. And gosh, when was the last time you went out and looked at the night sky, for instance? Um, there's some, there's some amazing things to see and view and feel. Just take in the sky and just, oh my God, this is amazing. And then also, you know, have curiosity, but do not have destructive curiosity. And so the message of the film is, look, know what you're getting into, know what you're looking at, and and appreciate appreciate things that come to you for what they are. You know, not everything has to be analyzed. Not everything has to be dissected. Not everything has to be chopped up. So enjoy the things that are provided to you and 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 be in awe and wonder. That's that's pretty much the idea. You know, there's a there's also a theme in in the film that you know, one will get when they actually view it. But there is a sub uh, a sub theme of a love story between two meteorites. Um, so that's that's in the, um, in revealed in the end of the film also.
Oh, wow. That's interesting. Very good. I like the idea of looking at the uh, the universe and how things connect with us here, but even just looking out in your yard and the property, looking at how the trees are and realize that they have they have a message and the trees and plants and all that have feelings too. Yes, yes. And, you know, I just saw a documentary that was done um, here by uh, a river project and they had some Native American women there. And, you know, they were talking about how when they were children, um, their their grandfathers would say, you know, talk to the plants and engage with them, you know, participate with them. This is the way that it works. This is how they get bigger and better. And this is this is how you nurture and foster these things. You know, and I sort of love the um, the Native American image that, um, you know, trees and things that grow, especially things that grow vertically, are very spiritual beings because they're firmly rooted in the earth and yet they're reaching for the heavens. And out here, you know, we have the saguaro cacti, which do that. And um, it's it's pretty astounding. And they they themselves are a vehicle of, okay, keep your grounding. You know, uh, I remember listening to Timothy Leary a number of years ago. I had an occasion to meet him in L.A. And he said something to the effect of, you know, as you are, as you are taking your high-velocity excursions into the cosmos, you know, remember to keep your feet on the ground. And he said, you know, he's had enough of those kinds of excursions to know what he's talking about, which I thought was quite profound. It's like be grounded and, and, and reach out, aspire for more. Um, seek to understand, but seek to understand in a way that is cooperative now, let me ask you about, like, since we're talking about feelings and, um, like, with trees and that, I want to go back to uh, the meteor that, you know, fell from Earth, I mean, fell from the universe and in your movie and that. Now, is that an inanimate object once it falls, or was it animate and then fall? I mean, did it have any feelings? I mean, did your did your characters sort of, well, your characters must have, the females must have had feelings because they wanted to embrace it and show it off and elevate yeah. it. Yeah, well, of course, it, it had... Um I'm sure that, you know, I mean, in in Native American traditions, everything is alive. A rock is alive. Dirt is alive. You know, everything is alive. And so does it have feelings? Yeah, sure. It's got uh, consciousness of some description. I mean, anytime there's a molecular lattice structure, there's energy vibing back and forth between all of those things. Hell yeah, it's got feelings. And so what does a meteorite feel when it falls to Earth? You know, I I don't know. Um, <laughs> Does it does it have a particular agenda? Is this you know God granted? Is it coincidental? Is it synchronistic? Who knows? But the interesting thing is these are these are entities from from space and they carry the energy of the of the source of their origin. You know, is it from a comet? Is it from Mars? Is it from the moon? It's it's really hard to tell until you do the analysis and dissect it and chop it up and then you'll know for sure. Uh, no. Um, you know, it's, it doesn't really matter. It's it's this thing that came from above somehow, and you know, does it have the awareness that it is awe-inspiring? I think it does. You know, I, I everything everything you know, it's it's like there's there's no coincidences, and you know, part of our job as filmmakers is to go ahead and to say to people, you know, these are some things that you can think about. And, um, you know, nothing's a coincidence. And uh, ultimately, as filmmakers, we're trying to entertain people into enlightenment. Exactly. So what kind of audience is going to love Meteoric? 
Um, well, first of all, people who love to go hiking, um, they're, you know, because they go out hiking and they see a rock and it's like, you know, out here we have some pretty amazing jasmine and other rocks and it's like, oh, wow. And it's like, yeah, well, appreciate it there. You don't necessarily need to pick it up and put it on your dashboard. Um, uh, those kind of people will like it. Uh, people that have a fascination with the sky, people who have a relationship will be interested in it because there are complexities about uh, this is what a person means versus this is what a person says. There's a good bit of that in there. So, you know, it's like uh, all of those people, men, women, uh, people who are tall, people who are short, um, they'll, they'll all be interested in this film. Very good. And as a director, what did you learn from this particular film? Uh, always have a headset. Um, you know, we had uh, we were very remote in a couple of the locations, and we were physically limited. Um, you know, the sound guy had to be in a certain position. We had a lot of wind. Uh, we had a lot of wind. Um, and, and so we had to battle the wind, but, you know, with the headset, um, you can hear certain things that, that don't happen. One of the things that happened, and I, I grabbed a headset right as we were finishing this one scene, and I realized that an actor had said the wrong word. Um, and, you know, it was, it was significant. It would have um, made a difference to the story. And so with that, it said, oh, no, that's not the right word. Here's what you need to say. And he fixed it. He got it in one take, you know, with the fix. And it's like, okay, good thing I listened to the headset. And there were places in in uh, in other scenarios. We had we had one scene where we had some sound problems, and um, you know, it was just not the reach out there to go ahead and be connected uh, with the headset and be able to view the monitor and all of that kind of thing. So extension cords for monitors, uh, listening to the sound as it goes by really, really hugely important. So that was, uh, you know, the main thing that I learned out there. And the other is, you know, it's like um, uh, don't have uh, an actor wear polyester. Uh, we had uh, one of our actresses had a polyester blouse, and with the wind, boy, there was so much noise that came right. through her microphone. And we could not get it out in post. Um, the sound guy and I, I mean, we worked on this one particular scene for probably three hours and couldn't get the sound out. And it was just, you know, like 22 seconds of film. And, and, and so what we ended up doing is going to the composer and saying, okay, every time she says an S word, and she said several in a row, um, there's this weird noise. Can you fix that? And she said, oh, yeah, I can do that. So she just added a weird little noise with the music, and it covered it beautifully. But cool. um, don't wear polyester over the lab mics. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. Didn't know that. Okay. <laughs> so right. in addition to the, uh, the mics and that, was there any other challenges that you had to deal with? You wrote the script as well, right? Yes. So you wrote it, um, so you get to see your words out there and – and did, did you have any issues with the props or the prop people not showing up or anything like that that always goes nope. with producing? Nope. Everything was um, – uh, I'm, a, I'm a bit anal uh, in my organization, and um, so everything was uh, checked and double-checked. We had redundancies. Um, we had all kinds of things that we could do just in case. Um, so we didn't, we didn't have any particular issues along that line. What we did have – 
is we did have a funding matter. And the funding matter is we, we needed a third day. We didn't have enough money to shoot a third day. Had we had a third day, we would have fixed a few things. We would have added a few things that we did not have an opportunity to add because our first day of shooting was an exceedingly long day. Normally, it's you know if you shoot six pages a day, that's considered a, a pretty good chunk of work. We had to shoot 12. We only had the location for one day. We had to shoot everything. And and so we, we had to rush a bit. And did you so, have a first AD? I mean, did they help keep everybody's morale, you know, boosted and so on? Um, nobody had time for any morale lapses. <laughs> everybody on the move. The only person that had any, any downtime was our, our on-set photographer, and he took a nap at one point. But other than that, everybody was like, let's go, let's go, moving on, moving on. And and we covered a good amount of territory uh, where we were shooting. And so, you know, from point A to point B, it was a significant walk. And, oh, by the way, we had to move all the gear. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that, the people, people were kept pretty busy. Um, you know, we had a great lunch. Uh, that very long shooting day. So that helped everyone. And we had the promise of a nice dinner afterwards. Um, the only limitation we had was the daylight that we burned. Mm-hmm. So did you work with the first as, uh, assistant director or did you handle all of that yourself? Um, we did not have the budget for a first assistant director. Um, the DP and I coordinated, uh, you know, calling the shots and the countdowns and all that kind of thing. Um so we we did that. Uh, that that is something that I will insist upon with any future production. It's like, yeah, you need your first AD. Um, they just help so much, and they they act as a direct conduit to the producer. So all of those things that need to get sorted out, you know, go tell that guy, you know, get the hell out of the shot and stop talking. <laughs> yeah, you exactly. Know? We're we're picking up his noise, you know, and stop throwing rocks. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, nobody was throwing rocks, but I have heard um, uh, the, the first film I did uh, was also done very remotely, and somebody decided to go out and take his pistol out there and target shoot, and it's like, no, no, <laughs> have you heard about the sound guy? You oh, my know, God. You're picking up your shooting. Yeah. You know, it's like, no, no. So, you know, the, the first AD will go to the producer, and then the producer, as they say, uh, producers don't get headaches, they give them. Yeah. Um, so you give the producer an opportunity to, to flourish in that capacity. Very good. So who handled all the casting? Because you really had a great cast of, of, of characters I for that. Um, I did, basically. it. Um, you know, I ended up functioning with more hyphens than are actually in the credits. But uh, um, Sam, uh, who was Finn, the cowboy, um, I had this was the third film that I had worked with him. And also Joel, the other guy, the astronomer, um, this was the third film I worked with him. So those were, you know, previous people that I knew. Um, Kincaid, the, the redhead who was just brilliant in the film. Um, I met her through a film festival and I really liked the film that she had done. And so I, I wrote to tell her. And so we established a relationship on the basis of that. And then Christina, um, the other cast member is the director of the Silicon Valley um, International Film Festival, and we met because uh, my my f- first directed film was uh, um, selected in that festival. So these were all people that I had met, 
And, you know, it, it, it bears, it bears repeating that, you know, it's who, you know, I mean, these are people I know, I trusted, I liked their vibes. Um, they were cooperative and I knew that they could, you know, what my consideration was when we, we talked to the various people, um, for quote unquote auditioning, um, can I get from them what I want? You know, is there enough relationship I have with them that I can, I can extract this from them? And so, you know, that's kind of my casting consideration. So I prefer to be, you know, as hands-on as possible. I have worked on films where they had casting directors who were brilliant. And actually, that's where I met several of the actors that I've um, used. I keep, you know, it's sort of like uh, Clint Eastwood will work with people again and again. Um, I'm just like Clint in so many ways. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I like to work with people that I know. Um, because you know you can trust them, you know you can lean on them, you you know you can get exactly what you what you want. Goes back to relationships, you know, building those it's, relationships and having the confidence and the trust with one another. And I think that with that, everything blossoms. Yeah, and, and you know, and with the actors, you know, I like them to be able to. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of a Meisner fan. I like people being in the moment with their uh, relationship, reacting with one another. I mean, if somebody says to you in a rehearsal, hi, how are you? And the other actor responds in a particular way. When you're on set, they might have a totally different tangential response. That's fine. You know, I trust them to go ahead and to, and, and to ride the wave of the energy that they're feeling in the moment. Very good. How long did it take you to write the script for Meteoric? I wrote the first draft easily within a day. Wow. Um, and then I went back and, and um, you know, I, I traced it out and, you know, uh, checked this and that, read it to myself. You know, I didn't like that person's dialogue there. Um, you know, when you, when you know, when you know what you want to write and you're in the flow, um, one can write fast. Um and, you know, like I hear people say, well, it took me three years to write this script. And it's like, why? <laughs> um, you know, groove on it. You know, get in there and immerse yourself and, um, you know, go with the flow right till you're exhausted. Uh, right till the energy runs out is, is more the point when you when you feel like, oh, I'm going to write today. And it's like, I'm going to write till I'm done. It could be 30 minutes. It could be four hours. could be eight hours. It could be, you know, you might pull an all-nighter. So it's just a matter of, of getting in the flow. But if you know what you're writing, it's it's relatively easy to write it. Do you have any tips for up-and-coming you know, screenwriters? Like you always point out, like on-the-nose stuff. You never want to do on-the-nose. No, you never want to do on-the-nose because people don't talk that way. What I would say, if you're having trouble with dialogue, go to Starbucks and be a fly on the wall. Listen to every conversation you hear. And, and notice the way that people talk to each other and notice what they don't say, because that's where the subtext and nuance comes in. And that's where it's fun and that's where it's interesting. And that's where you can apply so much. And that's where you can reveal so much about a person's psychology. Um, so there's that. The other thing I would say is write every day. And um, if you want to be a screenwriter and, you know, it's like, well, I could write a million dollar movie. All right, fine. So what you do is you go out and you buy the book on Amazon or wherever, Barnes & Noble. Um, your screenplay sucks. Buy that book. 
and read it and trust it because the book is right. And if you make the mistakes in that book, you, you won't, you won't sell a screenplay, period. If you use that book, you'll avoid a lot of the mistakes that cause readers to reject scripts. And, um, it's, it's actually quite a brilliant book. It's, I, I would say with bar none, um, it's, it's my favorite. What book was that again? Um, Your Screenplay Sucks okay. by William Akers, A-K-E-R-S. Um, it's a great book, and it's written so that you can digest it. I mean, you know, you're going to read maybe three pages, you know, with each particular topic. But sometimes it's only a page. Here, don't do this. Oh, okay, I was doing that. Yeah, well, stop it. It's like, doctor, it hurts when I go like this. Well, don't do that anymore. <laughs> you know, it's like, stop writing, stop writing crap in your screenplay. Yeah, very good. Now, this is not your first film, Meteoric. You have written some very interesting or produced and directed other films. One I really like is Zap. And uh, that's about that guy out trying to, you know, catch bad bugs with uh, a contraption. Well, yeah, it's about an astronomer who's doing a podcast uh, as he's filming the galactic center passing overhead one night. And this this was a dream. And, you know, it's like, yeah, you're out there and you're trying to do a podcast. And what if you're bugged by bugs? And and then I, I, I decided in the dream that the bug zapper would turn into a black hole. Every time it devoured a bug, its energy became more potent, like a black hole when it eats a planet. You know, mm, thank you. Now I have more gravity to dispense and I can capture more things. And so the bug zapper actually becomes a black hole. And as it becomes a black hole energetically, one must be careful circumventing those things because they will suck you in. And and that was part of the uh, the agenda. We had we had such great cooperation with that film. We had cooperation from a local telescope place, a place called Starizona. Um, we had uh, we had cooperation with the local pack of coyotes. We actually shot this during the pandemic on our property here. And we set up a location and, you know, lit it up and did all of this stuff. And I had kind of put out to the coyotes, we, we have we have a lot of wildlife here. Uh-huh. Uh, even though we live in town, there's a lot of wildlife. Um, this is like my partner was out the other morning and, you know, a pack of javelinas walked across our doorstep. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So we have coyotes. We have a pack of coyotes. And, you know, I kind of psychically put out to them, okay, guys, if you want to chime in while we're filming, totally cool with me. And the instruction was um, the cast could not react. You know, anybody or the uh, crew could not react. Only the cast member, single cast member. And he could just engage with the coyotes and howl back at them. Well, it happened. And the cooperation with those lovely creatures was just was just amazing. It was a super touch. So we had that was just it was perfect. We had a perfect night. A lot of times we have airplanes circling over our house. The the sheriff uh, of the county likes to orbit our house for whatever reason, uh, probably because we're making movies. Um, but uh, we didn't have any of that. We didn't we didn't have wind. It was uh, it was a perfect shooting night. Oh, very good. Now you wrote another film called Elevator Pitch, which I absolutely love, and. And and tell me a little bit about that, the inspir- inspiration that came out, because, you know, it has a sort of spiritual thing connected to it, you know, the sort of unpredictable yeah. spiritual happening. Yeah, well, uh, th- this project came about 
through something called stage32.com, which is sort of like a Facebook platform for filmmakers. And I met this guy on there, Rutger Oosterhof from the Netherlands. And he said, I want you to write a movie for me. He came up and said, I want you to write the movie for me. I've decided you're my guy. Okay, cool. Um, so he hired me. And it's about an Amish guy in an elevator with the devil. And a deal must be struck before they get to the bottom floor. So write that movie. And it's like, wow, how do we do this? Um, so, you know, we, we, uh, I put down a few, a few points. We discussed a lot. Um, and ultimately, uh, he agreed on it. He funded the project wholeheartedly. It was an expensive movie. We, we actually built the elevator over on a set in Burbank. Um, you know, and then tore it down. And so we, we manufactured that. We had great actors. We had Tom Wright, who has been in more television shows and films than you can shake a stick at. He was absolutely brilliant as the devil character, um, whose name was Orcus, who is, uh, Orcus is a lord of the underworld that, uh, deals with people who don't keep their oaths and promises. Uh-huh. And, and so it's a, it's a, it was a bit of, uh, there's, uh, hypocrisy and, uh, um, there's a purgatory concept of you're in purgatory when you, when you're kind of in limbo, when you can't decide what to do or when you want to do something that your, that your moral doctrine says you can't do. You know, that's what you, when, when you're placed in purgatory. So it became a film about that, it became a film about choice. And it was a lot of fun to make. I loved making that film. I loved our actors. Um, all three of them were, were particularly brilliant. And, you know, the one thing that we had with that is we found a location to film in Burbank that was airport adjacent. So every time Southwest decided to take off an airplane, we had a hold for sound, uh, which is a lot in the morning. Yeah. So we had a lot of hold for sound. And also we had these sconces on the, on the walls, uh, you know, with, with lights in them. And they would, they would move when the, when the planes took off. Um, so we had that to contend with also. So that was, you know, more interesting than we needed it to be. Very good. Now, Meteor has won other film festivals as well. I highly invite everybody to, uh, check out the film. Maybe stop by your website, Philip C. Sedgwick. Dot com and just go to Internet Movie Database as well and look up Meteoric and look up Philip C. Sedgwick. Oh, I want to let people know that you also uh, help other writers. You can help other writers. You work as a consultant um, as well. So if you've got a script out there, people, and you need a professional to kind of over to look at it and uh, give you some serious input on it, and they call it an industry a script doctor, but I think you're probably a little better than that. Um, I would recommend you reach out to Philip Sedgwick for that, because if you, unless your script is in perfect order, your film isn't going to work. So everybody needs a couple of different eyeballs looking at a script before you go to uh, production. There's always things that a person forgets about. And, you know, the idea is, you know, you've got this vision in your head and you're seeing it perfectly unfold. And it's like any good conversation between two people. You know, what you have in your head. Are you fully articulating that in a manner where the other person that you are speaking with can comprehend everything that you mean? Now, one last question. So when you were a young boy, what mm -hmm. did you dream of becoming? Well, you know, I would say as a young boy, 
uh, you know, fireman, you know, um, soldier, you know, we played Army back in the 50s. We played Army all the damn time because it's what you did. Um, you know, I served in the military, you know, it's like, yeah, no, that's not so much fun. Um, and it wasn't until uh, I got into high school that I, I recognized what I, that I wanted to write. And that was largely because of an English teacher I had in Kansas City who was absolutely phenomenal. And she was incredibly kind in, in very difficult times that were happening in my life. And, you know, I, I would say if there's one individual who pointed me in the right direction, it, w- it would be her. Very good. Any closing so, comments on people that want to be a filmmaker and they're scared, they're sitting on the fence because, A, it's costly, B, a tremendous amount of work. But how do you sort is, of push them, you know? Uh, well, you know, what I would say is it is it's the hardest work I've ever done making films. Um, but it's also the, as, as the word my partner likes to use, it's the funnest work you ever do, too. And And when you're done, you know, I mean, you have drama on sets. There's always drama on sets. This person's mad about this. You know, I didn't get my <laughs> vegan muffin. Um, you know, it's just like, well, you know, sorry, we're in the middle of the desert. We can't call for one right now. Um, you know, there's always there's always things. But when it's done, it's like there's a mo- there's an all is forgiven moment. <laughs> it's like there's a cosmic grace period that opens up that when you see the fruits of your labor on the screen, it's like, oh, my God, look what we did. Um, the 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 gratification that goes with that is is so extraordinary um, that it's 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 hard to describe how good that feels to see your project on the screen. And, you know, that's the reward as well as, look, you get to do a lot of good for a lot of people. Number one, you get to employ a lot of people. Uh, number two, you get to inspire a lot of people. Number three, you're fulfilling your cosmic duty, you know, like whatever reason, whatever thoughts you had in mind when you incarnated. Hey, you're probably doing something that supports that cause. Very good. Well, Philip, it's been a pleasure to talk with you today. Congratulations you, on Victoria. Me, New York. And anybody that wants to learn more about the film, I highly recommend you check out philipcsedgwick.com or the Internet Movie Database, Meteoric. And you can always see a little bit about, at least a summary, on zoeawards.com. And soon we're going to be uh, featuring uh, Meteoric, or a clip of it anyway, in this interview as well on Amazon Alexa via the Zoe Awards Festival Alexa skill. So that said, have a great day. Thank you, Victoria. Be sure to check out Philip Sedgwick at philipcsedgwick.com. Philip is an award-winning writer. His script, Neon Cactus, landed a, landed a berth as a quarter finalist in the Academy's Esteem Nicole Fellowship. Since then, more than 30 of his scripts and films have received acclaim in screenwriting contests, film festivals, and writing fellowship. Philip has produced film shorts, including Zap, which is one of my favorites. You have to check it out on his website. And Neon Cactus, I've not seen, and he's written other movies. In addition, if you're a writer out there, maybe a screenwriter or even a regular writer, Philip is available to help uh, be a mentor, an editor, or a script doctor, whatever you want to call it. He has a very good and intuitive grasp and can sort of help you explain your story a tad better. Anyway... 
check out philipcsedgwick.com. In the meantime, if you're looking to expand your brand and you want to be part of the future, hands-free, voice-activated platform like Amazon Alexa, check out studiocarlton.com. Enjoy the day.